So we've been considering particular aspects of these four pillars, realizing we can't say everything. So regarding truth, the emphasis was on knowing the divine reality under the shining of the true light. Then on life, our emphasis was on the incarnated, crucified, and resurrected Christ as the tree of life. Then on the church, the emphasis was on the church as the kingdom of God. Now, with the gospel, our emphasis is first upon the gospel announced by the Apostle Paul. But actually, we want to consider what we call the center of Paul's gospel. And it will be helpful, I think, if I would read some of the verses from the scripture reading with some comment. Okay, Romans 1.1 Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, a called apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Please recall what happened when the resurrected Christ appeared to Saul of Tarsus. What a radical turn took place prior to that time. He was absolutely an advocate of Judaism the religion of the law. When the Lord appeared to him, Paul asked two questions. The first, who are you, Lord? And the second is, what do you want me to do, Lord? I wonder what would happen if all the students at Boise State would ask these two questions. Whether they believe or don't believe right now, they would ask, Who are you, Lord? Will you please show me who you are? I want to know you as you are. Paul said in Galatians, It pleased God to reveal His Son in me. It pleases the Father very much to reveal his son. And then suppose all these Broncos and all these students, using them as an example, they would ask sincerely, what do you want me to do, Lord? And the Lord recognized, you really want to know. You want to know what you want, I, I want you to do? Then he might say something like this or indicate, first, I'd like you to finish your studies. And then I want you to go to the full-time training in Anaheim. And I won't say too much now about what's after that, but I may want you to marry someone who has the same heart as you to serve me 
And then I may want you to go to Boston for a year. And then I may want you to go to Europe for the rest of your life. Or I may want you to get a job and to get married and to have a family and simply to live a normal God-man life in the church. In the sight of God, they're about the same. So, when Paul asked these questions and then was directed to the church, the Lord had revealed to some in the body that this one was a chosen vessel, that he had been appointed to know God's will and to see the Lord and to suffer for his name. So Paul was separated. But he doesn't say here separated from, but separated unto. Uh, some Christian groups, the holiness groups, they have a good point. They emphasize we need to be separated from this and from that and from this and from that. But what are we separated unto? And Paul was separated unto the gospel of God. From that point on, the gospel of God became his being. It became his living. Uh, he lived and eventually died for the gospel of God. Then in verses 3 and 4, he goes on to tell us something crucial regarding the gospel of God, that it is concerning his son. The gospel of God is not first concerning our need, our problems, our salvation, our destiny. It's concerning God's Son. The gospel, therefore, is focused on a person. And this Son came out of the seed of David according to the flesh. This refers to the Son's humanity as the son of David. Then verse 4 goes on, who was designated the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness out of the resurrection of the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. We know from Romans 8.3 that he was the son of God in eternity. God sent his only son, his son, but this verse speaks of the Lord's humanity and of the Lord becoming the Son of God in resurrection with his glorified humanity. And Paul's gospel was particularly focused on Christ in this sense. 
And we will see that the reason for this is that God showed Paul that his eternal purpose is to have many sons expressing him corporately as the holy city, New Jerusalem, a corporate person. So God sent his son to deal with sin. Then in resurrection, the son in his humanity was designated the son of God, not only with divinity, but also with humanity. And he thereby became what Paul calls the firstborn, implying many others. Paul's gospel was focused on the Son, and it was especially focused on the Son in resurrection as the firstborn Son of God. And when we read Acts 13, we see this is what Paul proclaims. He quoted Psalm 2, the verse, You are my son, this day I have begotten you. And he applies that to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. We're anticipating here but the gospel of God, and especially Paul's gospel, is a gospel of sonship. It is the message from God to human beings, telling them how God's purpose is to have many sons, for which we were predestinated in Christ, and that God in His salvation is turning sinners into sons of God to be members of the body of Christ for His expression. So this is Paul's Gospel. Then in verse 9, he says, God is my witness. Now isn't this quite a striking statement? Sometimes people, they're almost blasphemy when they ask God to witness. But here, imagine to say, God is my witness. God himself will witness concerning what I'm doing and who I am. And God will witness, God whom I serve in my spirit, in the gospel of his Son. Now we see that the gospel of God's Son is the sphere of Paul's serving God in spirit. So the gospel concerning the Son, especially the Son as the firstborn, now becomes the realm in which he serves God. We appreciate and respect the heart of any believer who in response to the Lord's forgiveness loves him and wants to serve him. 
But the vast majority of those who aspire to serve the Lord serve in the realm of their concept, in the realm of their preference, in the realm of a traditional understanding of God's interest. Very few serve God with the realization of what God's eternal purpose is. So they cannot, and God, they cannot serve God in the gospel, and God will not witness to them. God will not say on their behalf to angels, to demons, this one is serving me in the gospel. Pope Benedict is not serving God in the gospel. He is serving God in Roman Catholicism. Now suppose someone is burdened for the salvation of sinners and his governing concept is we are all sinners. God sent his only begotten son to deal with sin and to provide eternal life to those who believe. We, if you believe in him, your sins will be forgiven. You will have eternal life, which means you will dwell in heaven in a lovely place. Well, the first part of that is the ABC of the gospel. But the goal is wrong. God will never witness to that goal. God will never agree. He has never agreed with the mistaken interpretation of John 14 that the Lord is now in heaven. He's a carpenter. So He's building a beautiful dwelling place that we all go to when we die. That is God's eternal purpose. That is what we were chosen for, to be holy, predestined for, that we would live there. We pointed out an affirmation and critique commenting on one of the premier Bible teachers in North America. We respect him. And we pointed out, your teaching regarding the Lord's coming and our destiny is incoherent. Because this is what you teach. You teach that the Lord has prepared some kind of glorious dwelling place in the heavens. And you teach that when a believer dies, the believer, without a body, goes to that lovely dwelling place. Then you also teach that the believers will be resurrected. And furthermore, you teach that the believers will come with Christ to the earth to reign, which means they leave their glorious home in the sky, which means it really was a Motel 6. <laughs> you leave it, and you come to the earth to reign. That's all we ask, is that everything be tested by the Word of God. That's all we ask. 
we apply this first to our own teaching. So the Gospel of John in John 14 is not teaching that. For centuries, it has been taught that way. The Father's house is heaven. The goal is heaven. I was once, while visiting my parents when they were still alive, uh, for my health, I was doing some exercises. And I saw a man there. There's no doubt he was a dear brother. Even he was a pastor. And I am not mocking him. I'm not demeaning him. He had a good heart. But he had this t-shirt. Now, if I had my Blackberry with a phone, I would take a picture of that t-shirt. On the back, it had a picture of a cross with a note tacked to the cross. And the note said, Gone to see Dad. We're preparing a place for you. I'll be back soon to pick you up. Signed, Jesus. Is that the truth? I've gone to see Dad. We're fixing a place for you. And then I'll come again to pick you up and take you there. Was that John 14? Well, we can't develop. That's not John 14. Reread it. Restudy it. Pray over it. Read the footnotes. But then according to that, the Lord comes back. Then he takes you to your house. But then he returns to earth. Think this through. He returns to earth with all the believers, so you leave the house he's been spending decades, centuries to build up. It makes no sense. It misrepresents God. God will not witness to it. It's a serious thing to say, God is my witness. God Himself will witness. You may say that. God may say, when you stand before my Son, I'll make it very clear I was not one with what you were doing. So we need to consider Paul's boldness to be able to say that he's serving in the gospel of his Son in this sphere. It's the realm. Now, practically speaking, to serve God in the gospel of His Son is to serve Him within the scope of the book of Romans. The book of Romans defines Paul's gospel. It shows how inclusive the gospel is. So to serve God in the gospel of His Son is to serve God in the revelation concerning the gospel given in Romans. And this is all inclusive. You serve God in the realm of announcing the redeeming death of Christ, in announcing His resurrection, 
and his indwelling the believers as the life-giving spirit. You proclaim justification, reconciliation, sanctification, renewing, transformation, confirmation, glorification, organic union, grafting, coherence, salvation in life, reigning in life, being led by the Spirit as a Son of God, being in the body of Christ, living the body life in the church life, in the local churches. This is Romans. This is the gospel of God in Romans. And this is the sphere in which Paul served God. Then, listen, in verses 15 and 16, he is speaking to believers. Because in verse 7 he said, To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, the called saints. He's speaking to believers. In verse 15 he says, So for my part I am ready to announce the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Our concept is the gospel is for unbelievers. To preach the gospel is to speak about Christ and his redemption to unbelievers. That's true. But if the gospel were only that, why would Paul say, I want to announce the gospel to all of you saints in Rome? When we come to the last verse in our little reading, we'll read a verse which says, God will establish you according to my gospel. His burden was that the saints would be established. And when you're established, you are unshakable. You are assured. You are certain. You are firm. You are definite. You are absolute. You are immovable. And Paul realized that the situation in Rome among the saints with Jews and Gentiles there needed establishing. So he was ready to announce the gospel. I, I, I do think that if I had sent an email to the brothers prior to arriving on Friday, said, I am eager to come to Boise, I'm ready to come to Boise, I will announce the gospel to you all. In this conference, I will announce the gospel to you who, who are in Boise. Well, some might wonder, do you consider us unsaved, as unregenerate, as unbelievers? Of course not. Then Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. In the New Testament, as far as I know, only three matters are called the power of God. That is, Christ crucified is the power of God. The word of the cross is the power of God. And the gospel is the power of God. Two other verses. In chapter 2, verse 16, Paul says, In the day... When God judges the secrets of men according to my gospel through Jesus Christ. 
I'm not sure when this judgment will be. But Paul is saying God judges the secrets that probably everyone on earth has a secret life, has secrets. It doesn't mean every secret is dark, it's corrupt, it's sinful. Some are. Some are. Where one person in this situation on the other hand, to have a secret life with the Lord, a life hidden with Christ in God, is precious. But one day, God will judge all the secrets according to Paul's gospel. Doesn't that indicate the gospel is the criterion? It's the measuring stick? That Paul's gospel will be the standard by which God judges the secrets. Now, the final verse for the time being, chapter 16, verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel. Again, he doesn't say the gospel. He says my gospel. And I commend the notes for your study at a later time. That is the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept in silence in the times of the ages. Okay, a few things here. God is able to establish you. All the saints in the Lord's recovery need to be established. It is not sufficient that a few brothers are established and that you depend on, on that. You yourself, all of us, need to be established by God. Okay, God himself does this. And eventually, all the blessed church kids that choose to follow the Lord, they will need to be established. They will need to be solidified in their own being regarding the Lord's recovery. They may eventually thank the Lord that they were born into a church family, but eventually they, may, they must be able to testify, I'm not here simply because my parents are here. I'm here because I have the assurance that this is the divine truth and that God himself has established me according to Paul's gospel. And even if my parents or my siblings or my closest companions in the churches would leave. I cannot leave because I'm established in this gospel. Amen. We need this. Then the gospel is the proclamation of Jesus Christ. And this proclamation is according to the revelation of the mystery. Now this is a difficult verse. And it's a deep verse. But I'd like to focus on this thought. The gospel is the proclamation concerning Jesus Christ. And that proclamation is the revelation of the mystery. This indicates 
the gospel unveils the hidden mystery of God. That mystery is revealed mainly in Ephesians and in Colossians, that Christ is the mystery of God, the expression of God, and the church is the mystery of Christ, the expression of Christ. Any so-called gospel that does not proclaim Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery is not a complete gospel. I won't say it's not the gospel. I had the privilege of meeting Brother Billy Graham on two occasions. One was for an extensive period of time. I honor him to the uttermost in the Lord for his purity for his faithfulness to the light that he has, for his uncompromising preaching of the word of the cross. But eventually he'll tell you we're all going to heaven as the final goal. There is no revelation of the mystery The next issue of Affirmation and Critique coming out in a few weeks, it's in the press now, is devoted to the gospel of God. And one article is entitled The Recovery of the All-Inclusive Gospel. And in a good spirit, we issue this challenge to all the theologians. Do you have the complete gospel? According to the New Testament, Then we cover 10 or 12 aspects of this complete gospel. And one of these aspects is the mystery of the gospel. Paul mentions it in Ephesians 6. If the gospel announced by believers is not the proclamation of Christ according to the revelation of the mystery, That gospel is not complete. So Paul makes it very clear, his gospel is the proclamation of a wonderful person, the all-inclusive Christ, and that is according to the mystery God revealed to him. I say again, that revelation is in Ephesians and Colossians. Now, we can go through the outline on the center of Paul's gospel. So, point one says, Paul's gospel is the unique gospel, the complete gospel. I'm burdened to emphasize this again. Thoughtful human beings whether they're educated formally or not, at least sometimes they ask, what am I doing here? Why do I exist? This is really asking about God's purpose. What is God's purpose? And the gospel... The complete gospel answers this question. 
In Romans 8.28, Paul says, All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Then in verse 29, he defines the purpose, being conformed to the image of his Son. One of the things that saddens me the most is that to refer to Paul's word also in Romans, the name of God is blasphemed among many other many unbelievers because of religious Christianity, what they've presented. You're a sinner, you're going to hell. Christ died for your sins. Believe in him. You will go to heaven. Maybe even your pets will go there. We have some little books written about pets having eternal life. Would you believe it? Yeah. That's the case. All my wife's pets, fish, quails, rabbits, dogs. What am I going to do? What am I going to do there? And, and so God, God is represented as saying, I created you for no, for no apparent reason, but you're all sinful, but I love you, I saved you, now I'll bring you to heaven. If that were God's purpose, why didn't he just create heaven and put all of us in there to begin with? That is not the revelation of the mystery. That is not the unfolding of God's eternal purpose. Paul was uniquely chosen to receive this revelation. And his gospel includes all the aspects of the gospel in the four gospels. In Matthew, the goal of the gospel of the kingdom is to bring people into God to make them citizens of the kingdom of the heavens. Paul's gospel includes this. In Mark, the preaching of the gospel is to bring part of the old creation into the new creation. Paul talks about this. The kingdom and the new creation. In Luke, we have the gospel of forgiveness to bring redeemed people back to the God-ordained blessing. Paul speaks of this in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses. In John, we have the eternal life so that we may bear fruit for the building up of the body of Christ, which is Christ's increase. Paul's gospel includes this. It's all-inclusive. I'd like to point out Slightly looking backward, in Romans 16.25, Paul says, God will establish you according to my gospel. Practically speaking, Paul's gospel is the book of Romans. If you want to be established for the long run, the way is to be permeated with Romans. And God will use the book of Romans to establish you. The life study training began with Romans. 
1974. The crystallization study began with Romans in 1994. That there's such vast material in the ministry. The New Testament is inexhaustible. But it may be that some might want to plan something. Let's say it's a five-year, a seven-year endeavor. And I do this in addition to being one with the, what the church is pursuing. I want to be established. Let's just say by the year 2020, I want to be established. And I would like to read and reread and reread and pray read and study the opened book of Romans with all the footnotes, the life study messages, the crystallization study messages, the other materials, so that by 2020, I am pickled with Romans, the whole gospel. I assure you, anyone who would do this, you will be unshakable. You will be the embodiment and expression of the gospel of God. B says Paul's gospel is the center of the New Testament revelation. Paul's gospel is a revelation of the triune God processed to become the all-inclusive, life-giving spirit. The four gospels all speak of Christ on earth. Paul's gospel speaks of Christ in the believers. Now, I think it's worthwhile to dwell on here for three or four minutes. Christ in you. The hope of glory. Colossians 1.27 Luke 24 tells us clearly the resurrected Christ has a body of flesh and bones. Right? He, he appeared. The disciples were frightened. They thought they saw a spirit, meaning a ghost. The Lord said, a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And then these men, brothers, it seems they needed some evidence. So the Lord took a piece of broiled fish and ate it. This is the resurrected Christ. This is in Luke 24. Uh, Thomas could touch him. The marks of the nails were in his hands. He has a body. It's mysterious, but it's a body of flesh and bones. And he could eat broiled fish. Don't ask me how you digest <laughs> broiled fish with a resurrection body. I have no idea. Maybe you'll just have to have some good Idaho salmon in the millennium and find out for yourself. <laughs> My point is, the resurrected Christ has a body of flesh and bone. We believe it. But Paul says to the Corinthians, do you not know that Jesus Christ is in you? He says in Romans 8.10, Christ is in you. 
in Ephesians, Ephesians 3.17, Christ is making his home in your hearts. Well, this morning, and I say this with respect, do you believe that Christ is in you? Do you know that Jesus Christ is in you? Okay. Do you have the feeling that a person with bones is inside of you? I, I never had this feeling. When I was 16, not long after I was saved, I said to myself in the Lord's presence, there's another person in me. I had no one to help me. There's another person in me. That was in 1955. What is that? 56 years ago, I never once had the sense that a being with bones is in me. But the Bible clearly says Christ has a body of flesh and bone. The Bible clearly says that Christ is in us. How can this be? Because the Bible clearly says that the resurrected Christ is a life-giving spirit. He is the Lord Spirit. And as the Lord Spirit, He indwells us. Now, if you ask, how can we reconcile these statements that Christ has a body of flesh and bones, and that Christ is the Spirit, and that Christ is in us, I would say the Bible doesn't say. And the Bible doesn't command us to do that. So, we're not here believing strange things. We're not here believing contradictions. We simply believe the Bible. When Luke says the Lord has a body of flesh and bones, we say amen. When Paul says the last Adam became a life-giving spirit, the Lord is the spirit, we say amen. When Paul says Christ in you, we say amen. And our experience confirms that Christ as the spirit is in us. Okay. This is Paul's gospel. This is his emphasis. Not Christ among you, but Christ in you. So the gospel of God is the subject of the book of Romans concerns Christ as the spirit living within the believers after his resurrection. If this is new to you and you're having trouble with this, uh, that's okay. Read Romans again. Read it for the first time. Pay attention to the Spirit. Pay attention to Christ. Christ in you. Then let me ask, if Christ is in you, where is he? Well, most believers will say, in my heart. Then I will ask, what is your heart? You have the term. Do you know what the Bible means by heart? And does the Bible actually say, Christ comes into your heart? He, he makes his home in our heart, but he's somewhere else first. The Bible says we're a dwelling place of God in spirit. The Lord be with your spirit. He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit. That means the Lord is with our spirit. 
This is higher and more subjective than what was presented in the Gospels. Surely it's higher than what's in Mark, which mainly concerned Christ in the flesh as he lived among his disciples after his incarnation, but before his death and resurrection. Paul was not there. He was being religious during that period of time. He met the resurrected Christ. The resurrected Christ came in him. And that's his gospel. The epistle to the Romans reveals that Christ has resurrected and has become the life-giving spirit. And as such, he is no longer merely the Christ outside the believers, but he is now Christ within them. This is astounding. I can hardly think about it for more than a few seconds without getting kind of dizzy. Listen. Christ the person is inside of us right now. And Christ is the embodiment and expression of the triune God. The God-man passing through Incarnation, human living, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension to be the all-inclusive spirit inside of you. A person, not a thing, not a matter, not an element, not an essence, not a substance, but a person. When I made that discovery and said, there's another person in me, I had no one to help me. I was 16. Suppose I could have gone to a home meeting for the high schoolers. And I could have said, something strange happened to me this week. I just want to tell you about it. I don't know what to say. That I was just thinking about the Lord, and then I realized, I have another person living in me. Another person. And then the serving ones are there. You can say, this is wonderful. And this is true. So, Let's look at some verses to help you understand what you're realizing. Number one, Christ as a person is in you. Number two, this person is in you because he is the Spirit. Number three is where he lives in you. You need to know where he resides. So if you like to be with him, you know where to go. Like, I don't know where Tim Allen lives in Boise. That if I just flew in and wanted to see him, I don't know where he resides. But if I have his address and I know where to go, well, now we know that Christ is in us as the Spirit and he's in our spirit. Suppose someone could have told me that on a Saturday night while we're having Papa John's pizza. Or there's probably better pizza in Boise than that. And, and then could have shepherded me. I told the trainees that that had happened. I probably would have been raptured by right. now. <laughs> but instead, I had to wait until 1966 and go to, go through, and pass out from seminary and then get the seminary eyes for a while <laughs> and then learn at the age of 27, I have a spirit. Amen. I didn't know that. And Christ is the Spirit and He's in me. What a marvelous 
mystery this is. So I don't envy Thomas and Philip asking those kind of questions. Lord, show us the Father. I, I don't want, want to go back there and be with the Lord in the flesh. Listen, there's another person in this meeting besides us. And he's listening to everything, and he's, I believe, basically, he's quite happy. The book, the epistle to the Romans reveals, this is two, that Christ has resurrected and has become the life-giving spirit. And as such, he is no longer merely the Christ outside the believer. He is outside. He is on the throne. He will return with his glorified body. He will. But he's not merely there. But he is now the Christ within them. I don't know what would happen if this morning, right at noon, between 12 noon and 12.15, every believer on the earth received a revelation that Jesus Christ is in them as the Spirit, in their spirit. I wonder what would happen. I wonder what would happen even among us. The Gospel in the book of Romans is the Gospel of the one who is now indwelling his believers as their subjective Savior. So this is our gospel. If we only preach Christ died for your sins or if we only preach what I call the end zone gospel. Now, I don't belittle this. I do not. You have dear believers who like football and they love the Lord. So they buy tickets in the end zone of these big stadiums because they know when one of the teams is in the red zone close to scoring, the camera will be trained on the goalpost. They know when there's a field goal attempt, the camera will be focused there, and especially for a conversion. So they hold up the placards, John 3.16. I don't demean this. They have a heart. They have a concern for people's salvation. They're not ashamed of this. God so loved the world. He gave His only begotten Son. Whoever believes in Him will not perish, but will have eternal life. That's part of the Gospel. But I, I've never seen a placard saying Romans 8.10. Christ in you. Or the Lord is the Spirit. Or Christ in you, the hope of glory. For many it stops with the Christ who died and resurrected and now He's in the heavens. So many believers, they have a historical Christ and a future Christ. They believe in the Christ who came 2,000 years ago and they believe in the Christ who will come in the future. But 
many miss the present Christ, the Christ today, the Christ now, the Christ in us. So we have to say sincerely to anyone, if you preach part of the gospel, we say amen to that. And we thank the Lord for anyone saved through that partial gospel. But we cannot stop here. We cannot. We must preach a complete gospel. We must preach Paul's gospel with the focus on Christ in the believers. We need to tell the students, God created you as a human being, as a vessel. And you will never be satisfied until God in Christ as the Spirit gets into you. What you need more than anything else is for Christ to come into you and to live in you and to be your life. And in order for that to happen, He died for your sins and He resurrected to become the Spirit. He is here ready to forgive you, to cleanse you, to reconcile you, to justify you. All of that so He can come into you that's all you need to do with us right now is to open your heart and open your mouth and call strongly, Oh, Lord Jesus! And He will do everything. We can't stop with the necessary ABCs. Christ died, Christ resurrected. For what? To be able to get into us. B, the entire book of Romans from chapter 1 on the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man, and on the righteousness of God to chapter 16 on the local churches as the expression of the body of Christ is the gospel of God in its completeness. The whole book of Romans is the gospel of God. So the body of Christ is part of the gospel. The local churches as expressions of the body of Christ, are part of the gospel. Every positive thing in Romans is part of the gospel. As revealed in Romans, Paul's gospel is a gospel of sonship. There we go. I mentioned this earlier. He knows God's heart is to have many sons. Paul knows that in the Godhead, Christ remains the only begotten Son. That means no brothers. One day I asked the trainees, as I asked you, uh, this thoughtful question. John 1.18 speaks of the only begotten Son. John 3.16 speaks of the only begotten Son. Clearly, Christ Jesus is the only begotten Son. Okay, this one who is the only begotten Son says, in John 20, verse 17, go to my brothers. Go to my brothers. Well, if you have a, a, a child, and he's the only child, and then he has brothers, he's no longer an only child. He's the firstborn. So how can the only begotten say that he has brothers? Well, he can say it because of Romans 1, 3, and 4 and other verses. 
that although he remains the only begotten Son in the Godhead, with divinity only, in resurrection he has become the firstborn Son of God with both divinity and humanity. And firstborn indicates brothers, many brothers, and Hebrews 2.10 says many sons. And Galatians emphasizes this. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. The central concept of the Gospel of God is related to the Son of God and God's intention to bring many sons into glory. Now, I don't know if there are rabid, radical feminists over there. Maybe that's just at Berkeley and University of Texas at Dallas. I don't know. But they read this and say, sons, oh, we're all excluded. All the females are excluded. Or brothers, many brothers. Okay, so it's a guy thing. All of us women are excluded. And some even, some even evangelical publishers have changed the Bible. They'll change sons to children or they'll add sisters. Go through my brothers and sisters. Okay. In God's point of view, all the believers, male and female, are brothers and will be sons. So we have men brothers and women brothers. Also in God's view, all the believers, male and female, will be the bride, will be the wife. So all the sisters are sons and all the brothers are part of the wife. This is really equal time. Everybody's nullified and everybody's included. So please realize, uh, if you're still fighting the feminism in your head, that sons includes all the believers just as the bride includes all the believers. Now, I wonder, I raise this question, I want to be careful, more or less for fun. Which do you think is harder to learn? For a sister to learn to be a brother and a son? Or for a brother to learn to be the bride? That does a number on your humanity. Ooh. Ooh. To be a son, to be a brother, to be a God-man. But a bride? I mean, well, you better get used to it. Because in God's economy, Christ is the bridegroom. He's the man. And in resurrection, there'll be no male and female. Just as now in Christ, there is no distinction. And so we have to learn to be able to pray things like, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Now the last section, and we're done. The center of Paul's gospel is Romans 8 which concerns the dispensing of the triune goddess life into the tripartite man. The reason this is the center is because Romans 8 reveals how the many brothers are produced. So it's the center. The firstborn son becomes the prototype functioning as the law of the spirit of life. 
And the function of the law of the spirit of life is not only to release us from the negative law, but even more to conform us to the image of God's firstborn Son, so that He, the firstborn Son, might be the first among many brothers. This is the goal. So God is telling sinners, you are sinners under God's righteous judgment, but I have provided redemption for you in Christ, crucified and resurrected. Receive Him, believe into Him. He will come into you as the life-giving Spirit, and this life-giving Spirit will function automatically as the law of life to make you exactly the same as my firstborn son. And that will qualify you to be a member of the body of Christ, which will consummate in the new Jerusalem, which holy city is the totality of the divine sonship. That fulfills Ephesians 1.5, which tells us we were predestinated unto sonship. So here's the center of Paul's gospel. Sinners becoming sons by the law of the spirit of life, conforming them to the image of the firstborn son. We're not conformed to the image of the only begotten son. That is a matter of Godhead, which is unchanging and unequal. We are conformed to the image of the firstborn son. It's the same person, but now in the status of the firstborn with humanity and divinity, we are all beholding and reflecting as a mirror the glory of the Lord. We are being transformed into the same image. So we're being transformed into this image, and furthermore, we will be conformed to his image. And in eternity, we will all be the expression of Christ. Yet in eternity, our God created and Christ redeemed and uplifted human characteristics will remain. So Brother Mike Adams will be there and we will know, okay, we're clear, he is not Tim Allen. That we will have our, our God created you could say individuality, not individualism, because God is not going to dispense with what he created. And furthermore, I'm inclined to believe that for eternity there will be this beautiful and harmonious oneness of people from every race, every culture, every language, as God created them. But everyone filled unto all the fullness of God, everyone conformed to the image of God, so together, we are a glorious, marvelous, remarkable corporate expression of the triune God in Christ. Amen. See, this is our heaven. Our, our heaven is the triune God and all of his sons as one corporate expression. The Bible reveals the mystery of God, the mystery of the universe, the mystery of man, the mystery of the church, and the mystery of the future. Within the Bible, Romans 8 is the mystery of all mysteries, for it particularly unveils and explains these five mysteries. 
I give you the verses so you can go study if you would like. Romans 8 reveals the focal point of God's economy that in eternity past, God purposed to enter into his chosen and redeemed people so that he could be their life and they could be his corporate expression. Boise State needs to hear this. Every human being needs to hear this. We owe it to them. It's sad that thoughtful persons, the only thing they've heard is something distorted from religion. So we have a great commission to live this out and to manifest this highest gospel wherever we are so that people have an opportunity to decide. Do you want to participate in this? Would you like to be a human being filled and overflowing with God, truly human yet truly divine? And then you enter into a oneness. And this oneness, we live in it. It's not a theory. We live in it. It's a oneness that transcends every human distinction of race, of color, of nationality, of language, of social class, of economic level. We are in this. We live in this. You come to our churches. You come to our meetings and see this motley crew that we are of all these ordinary human beings becoming filled with the triune God and expressing him and loving one another to the uttermost with our partiality. This is our gospel. And you compare our corporate church life. You scan the situation. Ethnic church here. Racial church there. High class church there. Low class church there. All according to worldly social distinctions. And you come to our meetings, who knows what you'll see. Especially you, you come to one of the feasts. You come to the training and there are about four or 5,000 of us. And you'll see a mini New Jerusalem. Amen. All kinds of languages, all kinds of colors, nationalities. No one being condescending, no one tolerating. There's no thought of that. We're just all one in the triune God. Amen. Amen. All sons of God to be his corporate expression. The law of the spirit of life is uniquely revealed in Romans 8. The law of the spirit of life is the triune God in motion. When the triune God moves within us, he is the law of the spirit of life. Romans 8 concerns the wonderful, all-inclusive, life-giving spirit as the ultimate consummation of the triune God. This spirit will make us exactly the same as Christ is in life, nature, and expression. Now, um, we recognize that some don't like this thought and some will disagree. And if they have a proper spirit, we're willing to talk about it, but not to fight. Because we know that by the end of the millennium, every believer, whoever was, will be exactly the same as Christ in life, nature, and expression. So if we're among the overcomers and enjoy the kingdom, and you meet someone who missed the kingdom, 
And now we see that they're transformed and conformed. We won't say, I told you so, I told you so. That's the old creation. But that person might say, uh, during the last thousand years, I changed my theology. <laughs> and I discovered that, ooh, uh, verses like 2 Corinthians 3.18 and Romans 8.29, they really mean what they say, right? And when John said, we shall all be like him, when we see him, we shall be like him, we shall see him as he is, that, that, that means what it says. <laughs> now what my pastor said, yeah, well, okay, give us some credit now. Now we're in eternity, we can have sweet fellowship. We, we tried our best to assure you of this. We were faithful, weren't we? We were faithful. But anyway, the good news is you arrived, we all arrived. Now we're in eternity. For a tr after a trillion billion years, we'll still be saying, wow, this is new. I never enjoyed this before. To me, this is much better than a customized home for me there in the cosmos that I will stay in for a short period of time as, as a five-star motel. Then to leave the whole thing and come to the earth, and then what? Why don't we follow the line of the New Testament revelation? God became a man in Christ to redeem us, to enter into us as the life-giving spirit, to make us the same as he is, so that we could be his body, expressing him, and that this body will consummate as the new Jerusalem, which is not heaven, not a material city, but it's a corporate married couple in the new heaven and the new earth. This is where we are, and this is where we're going, and this is what we're becoming. This is our gospel. Finally, Romans 8 is central because it concerns God's goal and our destiny, which is confirmation to the image of the firstborn Son of God. Eventually, we will be fully conformed to the image of God's firstborn Son for the eternal corporate expression of the triune God. May the Lord supply you with faith so you don't believe in your present condition. Don't believe that your past will be your future. Believe the divine revelation. We will all arrive at the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We will all, we all have the same destiny. So we're not competing with each other. We're not in rivalry with one another. We are all becoming the same as the firstborn son of God. This is the gospel. Praise the Lord. Okay, we have... 13 or 14 minutes for some response. Please follow the flow of the Spirit now. Don't say, I spoke last night, so myself may law as I cannot speak again to the next time I visit. That may never come, or it may be in years from now. Simply please follow the Spirit and share something. Amen.